James 1 this morning, starting in verse 9. I'm reading from the New King James Version. James writes, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted. I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren, every good Gift and every perfect gift is from above, and it comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Lord, thank you this morning for, again, the gift of your word. Um, it is for us a lamp to our feet. A lamp to our feet. God, you know where our feet have gone. God, you know where our feet tend to want to go. Um, Thank you, God, for your light. Thank you, God, that you did not leave us in the darkness, but you have come, Jesus, as the light of the world. And you tell us that if we follow you, we will not walk in darkness, but we will have the light of life. So we invite you, God, this morning to illuminate our lives to light up our path, to lead us in paths of righteousness, ultimately, God, for your sake, for your namesake and for your glory. God, we ask today that you would supernaturally speak to us. We believe you're alive. We believe you're still speaking. So give us ears to hear what your spirit wants to say. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, I want to preach from the sermon title, The Full Scope of Temptation. That's my sermon title this morning, The Full Scope of Temptation. Temptation. Last week, as James got right down to business, he began by talking about trials, various trials. We talked last week about this idea of when you fall into various trials, Now this week, James goes in a different direction, and he goes in this direction of temptations. Last week, trials. This week, temptations. And it makes sense that James is going in this direction. I think there are some key things that trials and temptations both have in common. We'll just focus on one real quick, and that is the fact that no matter who you are, no matter what you've been through, no matter how much Bible you know, No matter how close you are to God, every single person, especially those who are following Jesus, will walk through trials and temptations. In fact, we even look specifically at this word for trials, right? When you fall into various trials. The same when is used in verse 13 to talk about temptations. It's not a matter of, hey, this is a good message, just in case you might just so happen to fall into this temptation thing once or twice, maybe twice. No, it's like, here it comes. On Tuesday, I love what Russ shared at our community group about trials. He said, you know, with trials, um, it's been said that everybody is either coming out of a trial, walking through a trial, or headed for a trial. And I think the same could be said about temptations, but maybe times like 30 Every one of us are either coming out of a temptation, sometimes it happens all at the same time, walking through temptation, or we're headed for some kind of temptation. Trials and temptations, they are both two things, no matter who you are, the inevitable, the inevitability, rather, of trials and temptations for all of us. We will all walk through them, and though that is something that trials and temptations have in common, 
they also have some major differences. You see, for trials, we're talking about something that comes to us from the outside, circumstantially. When we talk about temptations, we're talking more about something that arises within us internally. Trials from without, temptations from within. With trials, we're talking about something, we learned this, right, that God wants to use and has the potential to produce some incredible things in our lives, right? With temptations, we're talking about something that has the potential to destroy some of the incredible things that God is doing in our life. With trials, it's interesting. With trials, I found in my life, I have such a tendency to want to reject the phone call when trials call, right? When trials come, my tendency is to go, decline. No thanks. That's my tendency. And what does God's word say? We learned last week, let patience have its perfect work. We're encouraged with trials to accept that phone call. In fact, James told us, greet it with joy. What's up, trials? How you doing? Greet it with joy. Now, with temptations, isn't it the complete opposite? With temptations, man, what I need to do with temptations is decline the offer. I need to send it to voicemail. But my tendency is to accept it. Trials, I need to accept. My tendency is to reject temptations. I need to reject. My tendency is to accept trials, this thing that God wants to use to bring out the best in us. Temptations. What Satan often uses to bring out the worst in us. That's why I've entitled this message this morning, The Full Scope of Temptation. Because of the destructive power, James talks about it there, of sin, when we go into this battle called life to war against the desires of our flesh and the temptations that we face, we need more than just a simple scope, you know, like a a simple focus. Okay, I'm going to make sure I... I'm not going to sin, you know, not going to fall into temptation. What James gives us is more than a simple scope. He gives us the full scope, the full scope. Um, And started thinking about this a little bit more, you know, the word scope. The word scope, it comes from a Latin, which just simply means to look through or to look at. Just the other day, Judah and I were in the backyard, and I was giving him some safety lessons with his new BB gun, which is really my old BB gun. And... um, I've never felt more American, actually, than last week teaching Judah how to shoot his BB gun at a shaken up Mountain Dew bottle. Rick and Bobby. Um, when Judah first lined up for his target, he took his BB gun and he put it at his hip. And like his eyes were at the target, but the barrel was pointed to my neighbor's house like this. And so, um, Judah, you got to look. Now, there's not a scope. There's a little sight. But, Judah, you got to focus your aim, your aim. James gives us a focus. He, he enables us to see the full scope, not just a simple scope. But um, I think we see three specific scopes that James gives us with temptation. The first scope, i got some props for you this morning. I hope you're okay with it, is it's as if James gives us a telescope. Okay? This is my... Um, $400 telescope. Just kidding. It's Judah's. It's his little uh, lunar telescope. Excited to use that tonight. There's a beautiful, I think, lunar some. What is it? Blood moon. You can tell I'm super into that stuff. Um, <laughs> blood moon. In my mind, I'm like, is it bleeding? Is it okay? Um, that's the first thing that James gives us. It's verses 9 down through 12. He gives us almost a telescopic view of temptation. He has us look far into the distance. And he has us evaluate not just the day-to-day temptations, but you know what he has us do? He starts by having us go to the end of our lives, envision the end of our lives, and looking back, and asking this question, will I be someone who fades away in my pursuit of the things of this world, or will I be one of those, as he describes in verse 12, who receives this thing called the crown of life, which God gives to those who endure temptation? The second thing he gives us is more of a Here's a microscope right here. Found these all in my kid's room. I just want you to know that, okay? A microscope. The next thing James does with temptation is he he gives us kind of like this examination table of temptation. Did you see that there? He's letting us know where temptation comes from. He says it doesn't come from God. Here's how it plays itself out. And here's what temptation can lead to. Can lead to sin, which could lead to death. And then lastly... This is, um, it's hard to explain, but um, this is Evie's Doc McStuffins. 
medical bag. Um, I'm often Evie's patient involuntarily, forcefully often, but um, that, that's hurt me before. Um, <laughs> inside of Evie's little Doc McStuffins medical kit you have, anybody know what this is called? Close, close, that's right here. I got a stethoscope, okay? This is called an otoscope. Otoscope. Google. Google. I found that out on Google. All right? Now, you remember as a kid, this is the thing they look in your ear, they check for strep throat. That seems to be the last place that James goes. He, he takes us on this journey to see the full scope of temptation. Again, first, it's this long-distance view. To see our lives almost in rewind. To imagine yourself at the end of your life looking back and going, who am I going to be? How am I going to finish? And then he takes us to the examination table, and with almost a microscopic lens, he has us look and examine temptation up close and personal so that we can fight it on a day-to-day basis. And then he ends where we'll end today, sort of in the doctor's office. Whether it's a stethoscope or an otoscope, I don't know, but he has us evaluating what's really going on inside. And what do we really believe about God? Let's follow him here. As we said, it starts here with this long lens view. And the way that James does that for us is he compares and contrasts two different lives. Did you see it there? One is the life of a rich man. We find that in verses 9 through 11. And the other is the life of a blessed man, which is interesting, right? Because we would often think the rich man is the blessed man. But but James is contrasting a rich man and a blessed man. He first talks about this rich man. And this is a rich man who, well, he spent his time in this life pursuing the things of this world. All-out pursuit. Now, that's not because of, you know, the fact that he is rich. Uh, Here, and we know in Scripture, like proper theology understands, that it's not the quantity of wealth, right, that determines your holiness or your lack thereof. That's called a poverty gospel. That says that, you know, you're only really being sanctified if you're living in a mud hut in Africa. Then you're really following Jesus. No, let's not go there. Let's not think that way. We're thankful in the body of Christ for those that God has blessed, and they're being good stewards of their resources to help those around them. Amen. So that's not what, it's not saying to have a quantity of wealth is to be in sin. It's not the quantity of your riches, but it's the quantity of your heart's love for those riches. The love of money is the root of all evil. It's this pursuit of stuff. That's what we see characterized by this rich man. It's found there at the end of that verse. He wasn't just a rich man. He's a rich man, it says at the end of verse 11, who faded away in his pursuits. That's the key word there. Pursuing the things of this world. He's a man who succumbed, you could say, to a life of temptation. All right? And so we tend to think of temptation as kind of like a day-to-day fight. James is getting us to think about our whole life. This is important. I think this is where a lot of us maybe fall short from achieving and walking with Jesus the way that we want to, is a lot of times we have such a short view of our lives rather than having a vision for the finish line. It's so important, man. I think the longer I walk with Jesus, the more I see the value of this because I see people walk away from Jesus that I used to walk with Jesus with like on a day-to-day basis, people that used to pour into my life that it's kind of like where are they now kind of thing. And so the scriptures would emphasize this. We know this, right? That starting well is important, and, and fighting the good fight is important. But as Christians, we need to be those that have, a, have our eyes on the finish line. Like, who am I going to be, and where is Soulless Church going to be? Not in three years. I think a lot of times it's like, man, what do, how's this thing going? How's it starting? You know the worst thing that could happen to us? Is that we start as this move of God, and then we end as a statistic. We end as another closed church. We end as another compromising church. You can read Revelation 2 and 3. It describes all the different tendencies that churches can become and moving away from God. That's why we need to be those like Paul who say, man, I want to say this. At the end of my life, I have fought the good fight, man. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. It's keeping up with it. So that's what Paul's doing. He's saying, get your eyes on the finish line. You have guys like Saul in the Bible who started so well. And there's this man here, this rich man, who we we see the end of his life as he lived to pursue the things of this world. When you look at the full body of his life, this kind of like character study, you see that he was a man who fell into the temptations of this world. It's 1 Timothy 6, 9, specifically about riches, that says that those who desire to be rich 
fall into temptation. This is not saying those who desire to accumulate wealth, that's not the heart here, accumulating wealth. The heart here is a desire, a greedy desire to have and possess more, okay? Um, It's not wrong to accumulate a lot of money. It's wrong to keep it. It's wrong to hold on to it. It's wrong to hoard it and grip tight upon it. It's wrong to take the blessings of God and then pull them close and move away from God, right? So this is someone who's not doing that. This is someone who's desiring to be rich, pursuing the things of this world as if there was no eternity. And they fall into, it says, a temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. That would be this rich man, pursuing the things of this world, falling into these destructive lusts, and we see the end of this guy's life. It says that he fades away. What a sad ending to a life. Right? There's like this, I don't know if you remember this saying, he who dies with the most toys wins. You ever seen that? The Bible would say this, he who dies with the most toys dies. Dies. What a sad way. This is a, this is a legacy-less life. This is an impactless life. This is a life that just lived to cure as much as possible here on this world. And then when it's over, well, when you live for this world, well, this world is all you get. And you just fade away. I don't know about you. I don't want to just fade away. I don't spiritually, historically, like I don't want to. And this is what this is saying. This is a guy who just, he's going to fade away. Like, he's going to fade away from history, despite how big he was, how big his house was, how big his boat was. He's one of the billions of people who live. Just going to fade away. He's going to fade away from reality. He had his stuff, but now that he's dead, he can't have it no more. He's gone. And God forbid, without the grace of God, it's potential that this person will fade away eternally. Just fading and passing away. Like when I get to the end of my life, like my, you know, I'm looking ahead right now. I just turned 30 last year. It's kind of a significant time in my life right now, going through all sorts of crises. Um, I think 31 is, is scaring me. It's like, hello, like come into your 30s, you know. Um, but yeah, it's like, it's crazy how I idolized this age in my life for so long, just to be transparent. Like, and when I turn, I just want to be used by God. and to grow my family. I want to serve him. And then you get here, and, and you're like, oh, that's it? Okay, my 40s, man. You know, my 40s. When I get to my 40s, I'll be like a dignified man. I'll be a 40-year-old. You know, and I'll kind of, and you can kind of live just decade to get decade trying to chase something rather than just living out the joy of being used by God with right where you're at. And I don't want to ever get there. I certainly don't want to get to my 50s and 60s and go, I'm done now. I'm done. Just going to fade away now. I've sowed enough seeds. I've, I've fought the fight. I've finished the race. No, bro, you're still living. I love that about our church. I love how our church is such a mixed group of decades. And I love that you almost can't tell. If you were to gauge zeal based on decade, you wouldn't be able to do that here. I love just the fire to serve Jesus despite where we are in life. It's such an awesome thing. But this is a a sad example of someone who's living for the things of this world, falls into that temptation, just fades away. And then he's contrasted with this other guy, right? This blessed man. That's the next verse. This is the guy that we want to be. And this blessed man, well, he's not someone who lives in love with this world, pursuing this world, just fades away from history. But he's a man, the Bible tells us here, who... He endures temptation, endures temptation in his life. In other words, though he was tempted in his life to live and love the things of this world, he endures it. And it tells us in the end that when he gets to that finish line, he's going to receive a crown of life. He's not going to fade away into death. He's going to, he's going to step into life. The crown of life, it's a victor's crown. It's a champion's crown that says, good done, uh, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into your Rest. And it says this. This is a key, I think, insight to this man in verse 12. It's at the end. It says, God is going to give those. He's promised to give that crown to those who love him. What a contrast here. So let's back up. James has us looking through this telescope, looking at the end of our lives and saying, okay, when I look back, will I be the rich man that pursued the things and loved the things of this world And then just sort of fades away in my pursuits? Or will I be someone who's a blessed man? 
who looking back on my life, I endured the temptations that all this world had to offer. And instead, I was someone who loved God with my whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, a lover of God. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 3 that there's going to come a time, I believe we're in that time, where men will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Something we're tempted toward every day. Even though it's in your presence, God, that there's fullness of joy, at your right hands are pleasures forevermore. There's going to come a time where we will seek pleasure, we will seek joy, we will seek other things to be our savior. There's going to come a time, I believe we're in that time. Two men, two trajectories and two destinies. One fades away, one receives the crown of life, someone who loves, uh, loves God. Now what's interesting about this sort of comparison is I think you see even deeper insight by the Apostle John in 1 John. John kind of expounds these two verses in 1 John when he says this. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, notice this, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world, here's the same language, is passing away, fading away. But he who does the will of God, here's the contrast again, abides forever, forever. An interesting passage here. You know what John's doing here? John is describing a life that has been transformed by the love of God. He calls it the love of the Father. And what he's saying here is that when God's love comes to you, you don't just simply acknowledge it and say, I'm a person loved by God, but it starts to work on the inside of you. And when God's love starts to fill you, the Father loves, Father's love starts to come in you, it actually starts to change what you love. You start to hate things you used to love. You start to love things you used to hate. How do I, what? I love that now. All right. It's this work that God does by his spirit through his love. This is, according to John, this is the evidence. John says, here's a great way to test whether or not you are in a loving relationship with God. Not just how much you can articulate what the gospel is, but what evidence in your life shows that God's love has been so real to you that you love differently. The things that you love are different. The things that you used to love are are different. Now you're someone who doesn't love this world, but you love God. You're a lover of God. There's a contrast here. Now I want to point out a few things about this verse so we don't get confused. Do not love the world. Right now you're going, for God so loved the world. I want to be like God. I'm going to love the world. No, that's not what, that's not what we would be led to do here. This, of course, is not talking about people. This is not talking about the purpose of the kingdom to bring all people to God's mission, to bring all people to himself. This is talking about the things in this world that God has given us. We read that there at the end of James, that every good and perfect gift is from above. The temptation here, okay, is not telling you to hate people in the world, no, but nor is it telling you to love the things in the world. We got it understand that but in addition to that this doesn't mean don't enjoy your life like let's stop for a second okay do you not love the world okay do you love your wife no i don't love the world i just do you love ben and jerry's no it's in the world i love it okay <laughs> do you love church right now no, it's in we're in the world don't love this okay. i love god i only this is not talking about like sort of this weird legalistic um you know, reject all the gifts that God has given. This is about stewardship. This is about idolatry. What this is saying is that there's a proper way to love God and to enjoy the things of this world, and then there is a tempting way, which is to switch the giver and the gifts. And we make the things that he's given us the actual God that we worship. And we start to love the gifts rather than the giver. This is how to love. Now, notice what John says. He, he describes these three things. That as we pass through our lives, each one of us are going to be tempted to love these things instead of God. He says there's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And I think it's key that he says that it's all that is in the world. In the Greek, that word means all. All that's in the world. I don't think he's being like extreme 
you know, like preachers do, you know, like over-dramatizing real big fishing this. I think what he's actually saying is, and I used to tell this to the high school students, like those of you who are raised in the church and you're kind of like, you know, I just want to build my testimony. And so I think I'm going to go out like the prodigal and just end up in the pig slop so that I can just have a, so the Lord can use my misery and make it a ministry. And, and, you know, I just want to go and see what's out there. That way I can be a genuine Christian. You don't have to do that. In fact, I used to tell them, here, I did it for you. Okay, it was a failed experiment. So here's what you need to understand. This is all you're going to find. Like if today you're not walking with Jesus because there's something else that you're in love with, it's one of these things. It's all you're going to find. It's the lust of the flesh, which is what we can feel. You could sum it up in one word, passion. Someone in a relationship making me feel loved because I'm insecure about how much God loves me, so I need them to feel love, passion. It's a sexual experience, a sexual addiction, a sexual relationship that gratifies the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. This is what I can have. You know, if I could only have that, if I could only have what they have, and... um, the problem with this is our natural tendency is toward comparison anyway, and, and you know, um, our hearts are drawn to comparison and wanting what everyone else has compared to what I have. Um, the world feeds that because every new thing that comes out is the thing that you like you've been missing until now. And social media has weaponized this. We've never been more discontent as a society. I mean, because we didn't have as many lenses to compare our lives to someone else's life. And so for some of us, the reason why we're living in, we're falling into temptation is because we're just obsessed with that thing they have, and I wish I had it. Which, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but Instagram's a lie. There's things called filters. You know, most of you know this because when you post your photo, it was the best one out of all the failed ones, right? What's in the world, man? What what can I love? What's tempting me to love instead of God? You got the lust of the flesh, passion. You got the lust of the eyes. We'll call that possession, what I can possess, what I can have. And then he says, in the pride of life, the pride of life, we'll call this position, what I can be. So so a lot of us right now, we're stuck in this rat race because what started as a joy with my career, and it started with, man, I I want this job because I want to be able to bless people. I want to be able to bless my family has now become a corporate ladder rat race for you to be the top dog. If I could just be, and that definitely plays into social media as well, just got to give off this version of who I am, the pride of life. And that's what social media really is at the end of the day. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. You're like, Andrew, I follow you. Okay. But, but isn't there this subtle tendency with kind of how it's been weaponized with social media to live a life that just kind of is like, look at my life. Look where I am. Look what I'm doing. Look what I have. Nothing wrong with doing. Nothing wrong with having. Nothing wrong with living. What's sinful there is this thing called position. Do you know who I am? And James says, or sorry, John says, this is all that's out there. I want to go build my testimony. Here's what you're going to find. Things you can feel, things you can have, and positions that you can be. None of it pales in comparison to the satisfying love of God. None of it. You could pursue it. You could try, but your hands are going to be left empty like sand passing through. Like try to grasp the wind. It will not satisfy you. We see this is... Always what we see temptation rooted in. I mean, even the Garden of Eden, the first sin. Notice this. When the woman saw first that the tree was, this is Eve being tempted. She saw that it was good for food. There's passion. It was pleasant to the eyes, the lust of the eyes. Something she could possess, lust of the eyes. And look, a, desire, a tree desirable to make her wise. Oh, I can be like God. I can have God's position. You look all throughout the scriptures. This is all that's there. And the enemy likes to dress it up and give it all these different versions to say, you're missing out, you're missing this. But that's the bait and switch of temptation. Even Jesus, when he was tempted, he was tempted with what? Turn this bread, turn these stones into bread, lust of the flesh. Jump off this tower and save yourself and everyone will worship you, the pride of life. 
position. Jesus, Satan says, look at all these kingdoms. They can be yours. Possession. It's all that's out there. And John is saying, listen, God's love is so much better. And to enjoy the gifts of God works so much better rather than to worship the gifts of God. They will not do what only Jesus can. In the end, the point is that the love of God transforms what we love. That telescopic view lets us look ahead, and that's what we want to do. I think that's the biggest thing with temptation is to go, God, am I going to finish this race? Like, looking back at the end of my life, will I be someone that crosses the finish line as someone who endured these things because I loved you, or will I fade away in my pursuits? Back to James, we see also now this microscope. So we have that long lens vision, but, but then it's important, we understand this, right? To get to be that person, well, I've got to have victory over temptation today. I mean, that, that's really where the rubber meets the road. Um, who you are tomorrow, you're becoming today. You're becoming today who you're going to be tomorrow. Just the decisions you're making, even just the habits. And it usually starts with just a thought, right? Just these thoughts. Okay. A thought becomes an action. Oh, oops. <laughs> an action becomes a habit. I can't stop. A habit becomes your character. Who am I? How, how did I become this person? James talks about it. We need to know how that plays out. He kind of gives us this microscopic view, and he wants us to know where temptation comes from. And I love where he starts. He starts theologically. He starts by getting us to think about who God is. And he says in verse 13, Let no one say when he's tempted, I am tempted by God. God is the one Tempting me. That would be inconsistent with God's nature, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So just a simple start to understanding how temptation plays out. It's not God that's doing it. God doesn't tempt anyone. We know in Scripture who the tempter is. Okay. And that's Satan. Matthew 4 tells us that that's who Satan is. He's the tempter. Now, a good question to ask, though, would be, well, then what is God's role in temptation? You ever wonder that? When you're being tempted? God, where are you in all this? There's an interesting verse, I think, that um, can mess with us a little bit. It's Matthew 4.1. You ever seen this verse? Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Like right now, some of you guys are like, God, lead my life. God's like, all right. Jesus himself led up by, it makes sense now why Jesus said, here's how you got to pray. God, lead me not into temptation. Please. Makes sense now, doesn't it? Let no one say, though, when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God. No, no. God does not initiate temptation. God does not have his hand in temptation. God is good. That could never come from God. But God will allow us to be tempted. He will even lead us by his spirit to be tempted. Now, I think an important thing here is it doesn't say that Jesus was led by the flesh into the wilderness. Sometimes we find ourselves in situations of temptation because we're being stupid. It wasn't the, that wasn't the spirit that brought you to that bar. Like, I've been sober now for a couple years, but I just feel the Lord leading me to evangelize, you know? It's like, different mission field might be a good idea, right? Um, sometimes it's not the Spirit. Sometimes, probably most of the time, I find that it's me failing to do what, what Paul says in Ephesians 5. Paul says that when we're walking in, in this life, trying to walk in light, we've got to walk circumspectly, right? Which means with like a, you have a full view of your, your surroundings. You're being sober. You're be, being vigilant because your adversary, he's like a lion. He could prowl at every moment. With that said, there are times where Jesus will allow us to be tempted. He's not a tempter. Jesus, God is not a tempter, but we understand this from Scripture, that God is a tester. He doesn't tempt. He doesn't tempt. That's the enemy. But he does test. He does test. Right? You ever wonder about that? Like, God, um, you're doing great. Everything's you, the saving humanity. It's been awesome. Great job. But... What, did you ever think about like maybe just not putting that tree in the garden? You know what I mean? Like, did it have to be there? You know, like, wouldn't it, everything? Wouldn't things have just been better if it was just like eat everything, eat it all? 
Like maybe we just, maybe you just don't plant that tree. Maybe just be a little better. You know what you would have had? What you would have had was a bunch of robots. God made man in his image. God is, God is a free will. God is a self-determinant being. He made us in his image. And I love what God does. Is he doesn't you know, make us pull string toys that say, I love you. I love you, you creator, you know. We have been chosen, you know, like. It's for the Calvinists. Um, I love that God. It was out of God's decision to create this world, out of his love that he sent his son. Obligatory love does not please the heart of God. Obligatory love. Ugh. Imagine if anybody in your life loved you that way. That feels, it almost feels worse than hate, doesn't it? Fake love. What makes marriage so special is that you could be loving anybody else in this world, but you're choosing to love that person. You're choosing to stick it out with that person. And so God wants our love for him to be genuine, and so he will test our love. And not just to make us go, oh, I don't love you, God, but no, to grow our love for him. That's why a test exists, by the way. Okay? And that's what it says about this man. Blessed is the man who, when he has been approved. That means he passes the test. Um, life is really just this big exam where God is seeking to grow more and more his love in our hearts for him. And the way that he does this, he'll, he'll walk us into tests where you go, okay, you have an opportunity right now to love this world or you have an opportunity to love me, to endure temptation. Blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved, he will be given the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So God says, here's, here's the scenario. Now, some of you guys are like, I, Andrew, I've been taking the same test for years. What's really cool about God's school is that even when we fail, we never get expelled. Thank you, Jesus, because Jesus passed. Amen? Jesus paid it all. But because God is so committed to working in our lives and transforming what we love, he'll, he's just so good to just allow the same test. Right? I love it. When you fail the test, you don't get bumped down a grade. It's just there on your desk the next day. It's like, try again. And, and he just grows his glory to glory. Glory to glory. That's why we don't compare our temptations to other people's temptations. We're all taking a different test. And God's working our lives a different way, but it's always in this process of transforming us. So, so that's kind of God's role in this. But here's how it plays out in our role. Here's how we fight it. When that test comes, here's what it's rooted in. James says that each man is tempted. Here's where temptation, temptation gets brewed from. When he is drawn away, verse 14, by his own desires and enticed. Here's, here's where temptation plays itself out. Maybe you've been led by the Spirit into the situation. Maybe you didn't see it coming. But you find yourself in a situation where all of a sudden you feel desires for something. Drawn away. And these desires are not like, delight yourself in the sight of the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. This is lustful desires in the Greek. It, it speaks of these cravings to have, the, the, this dissatisfaction with life that needs this. So whatever that may be for us, sometimes it's, it's the desire to get even. It's the desire to harbor bitterness. Sometimes it's the desire to explode in anger. Sometimes it's the desire to look at porn. Sometimes it's the desire to gossip. Sometimes it's the de desire to, to betray someone. Whatever it may be, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, one of those. But that's where it begins. That's where temptation comes from. And it says is that we get drawn away by those desires, right? Like we, we need to understand this, that um, each of us have a traitor within. You ever, you ever betrayed yourself with your desires? That, that traitor within. And the, that those desires, they start to draw me away. And we, it's like we love to blame it on the devil. He's got a hand in it. But most of the time, it's been said, like, I am my own worst enemy. What my flesh craves. The world is out there advertising it. Satan is exasperating it. But then my flesh is craving it. And I'm drawn away. The word drawn away, it literally means lured away. James is using fishing language. Where you see the bait, but you don't see the hook. 
and you're drawn away by your own desires. This is where temptation plays out. Now, remember what we talked about with how God leads us into temptation by his spirit? One of the greatest promises, I I want you to latch onto this, not just as a Bible verse, but as truth for your life. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says this great news. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. Welcome to the human club. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, he will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. This is God's word. So Jesus will allow temptation. The spirit will even lead you into temptation. But God will never allow you to be stuck in inevitable defeat. He's always faithful to lead us out. It's like thinking like if, you know, we were led into a room of temptation, we got to recognize that there's always an exit. I see three from where I am right now. There's always an exit. And so sometimes the question is, well, how, how do I take the exit? And that should be the question. The answer is by any means necessary. Like so much so that I love 1 Corinthians 6 when Paul is writing to this church, they're steeped in sexual sin. And Paul goes, okay, sexual sin, it's just, you're sinning against not just the person, you're sinning against yourself. So when you're tempted into sexual sin, here's what you need to understand, okay? There's a way out. How do I take that way out? Paul says, flee sexual immorality. You know what that means in the Greek? Start running. Boyfriends? Literally. Like, it's sometimes it's, it's that literal. Jesus said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Take radical measures not to be overcome by what you're tempted by. Remember what God said to Cain? He said, Cain, sin lies at your door. Its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. By the power of the Spirit of God, do you know that you can rule over your sin? Through the grace of Jesus, did you know that you are not an inevitable failure, but that through Jesus you are more than a conqueror? Do you know this? You go, I've failed so much. I've taken this test so much. The good news about this is God is still here. He's still with you. As a teacher, he doesn't get impatient. He doesn't go, well, get out of here. Go to the principal's office. He's faithful. He's patient with us. I think this is so huge. We need to understand. There's an insight here. He says this, that we're drawn away by our own desires and enticed. God is faithful. He always allows the way of escape. And then it says this, that when desire conceives, verse 15, it gives birth to sin. Now, here's something really insightful. Do you know what James is saying here? James is saying that temptation and sin are two different things. A lot of times the reason why we give in to temptation is because of the guilt of feeling tempted in the first place. Oh man, I can't, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a lousy human being. I can't, believe I, I can't believe my sinful desires are drawing to that. I've already crossed the line of being tempted. I might as well dive right in. And it goes back to this reminder that temptation is common to man, guys. It's common to man. It's common to Jesus. It was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. If you want to live a life of never being tempted, you got to go to heaven. That's where that's going to be. But here on earth, it's going to, and I love how like, you know, you have people in histories of the church that they try to escape temptation in the world by going to like, they built hermitages where they could go live away. The problem, like even if you go to your little uh, like temptation rescue camp, you still go with you. And so it's a life. It's a journey. The victory, the victory is not that you're not tempted. The question isn't how long have you been without that sin. It's when you're tempted next week, what's going to happen? Temptation. See, temptation, it says here, it can conceive. Now, that is when the temptation and the opportunity come together. And sin is born. That's what sin is. Sin is not being tempted. Sin is when I act on the temptation, when I step into the temptation. Um, again, it's this great promise. I love this verse. I found this scripture. I've never seen this scripture before. Do you know that 2 Peter 2.9 says, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. What great hope. So, Because sometimes I don't. I don't know, okay. Oh, God, you know. You know. You're faithful to do it. So 
Temptation doesn't have to conceive and give birth to this baby called sin. Now, here's the, the trick about the baby sin. Sin baby. Um, that's my baby in the back, actually. Uh, she's really cute, Penny. She's getting big. Like, it's like she's a baby, but sometimes I'm like, I don't feel right calling you a baby because you're so huge. Um, but she's not a toddler. That's an illustration, because look what it says. It says in verse 15 that sin, notice this, when it is full grown, it brings forth death. Okay? James is talking about the nature of sin. Yeah, what you did, that, that action, it gave birth to sin, but the reason why temptation is so destructive is because sin never stagnates. It's like mold. You see a little mold, you go, ah, oh, it's all right. Just board it up. It always grows. It always develops. And so some of us today, we're at a place where what was a little pet sin has now grown and developed into something full grown. What happened? What happened was, well, we, we sort of, we had like some respect for, you know, our sin. We were like, well, I'm just going to manage it. I'm just going to manage, I got it, sin management. I'm just going to, just one drink, whatever it is, one time, just once, just one more. Just one more, just one more, just one more when sin is full grown. And now what was managed has grown. And now this thing that was once just this little pet sin has grown to be this monster that you never saw coming. And you're like, how did I get here? And James says, here's the danger when that thing grows. With it comes death. Death. This could be literal. Sometimes I know people who have died physically from sin. But sometimes it's worse than that. Sometimes you live and, and you're spiritually dead. Death to a calling. Death to a family. Death to churches. When sin is full grown, it brings forth Death. In Romans 7, Paul finds himself in this battle. And he says, I just, I don't understand. Everything that I want to do, the obedience, I want to crucify my flesh with its passions and desires. I want to obey God. I want to love God. But every time I set my heart to do the thing I want to do, I find myself doing the opposite. He says, I don't do what I want to do. In fact, I love apparently to do what I hate doing. And he ends with this statement. He says, oh, wretched man that I am. Taking this test over and over and over again, who will deliver me from this body of death? And I love when Paul asks and answers his own questions. He says, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that there is more to my life today than my track record of how I've responded to temptation. Thanks be to God that despite what sin might have taken from me, thanks be to God that I'm still here. Thanks be to God that God is still with me. Sin is not forgiving, but thanks be to God that he is. And that right now, despite where I've come to, despite what I've gone through, despite what sort of mess and destruction is in my trail, there's nothing broken that God won't restore. And so he ends with this, as we talked about the examination table, as the worship team comes up, we close out here. He says this, this is the most important thing, verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So we've looked through this telescope to look ahead and kind of go, what kind of life am I going to live? He frames, frames temptation first as the full body of my life. Am I going to be a lover of this world or a lover of God? Someone who's been transformed by the love of God or someone who, who doesn't endure temptation and pursues the things of this world. Then as he takes us through what temptation looks like, we see where, where it's rooted and what it, what it grows into and how temptation draws us away and, and, and entraps us. And then after, as we put the microscope down and we sort of pick up the medical kit, James goes, at the end of the day, here's the thing. Don't be deceived. He, he gets right for the heart. He goes, at the end of the day, it's, it's as if James is saying, the most important thing about this, like today, wherever you find yourself in temptation, whether you're, whether you've, you're walking in this victory 
or you're walking in defeat, James would say, the most important thing about you is right now, what do you believe about God? What do you believe about God? Don't be deceived into thinking wrong ideas about God. The most important things is not how you perform in temptation. It's what do you believe about God despite your performance. He says, here's, what, here's who God is. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. Everything good comes from him. And, and look, I love this. He has no shadow of turning. He's the father of lights. All right? in, in Revelation, the Bible says that in the new heavens and new earth, there's not going to be a sun, there's not going to be a moon. Because the Lamb of God, Jesus, is going to be the illuminating light. And he's got no shadow. And this is obviously literal. It speaks of how much illuminates from him. But this is also theological because it speaks to his nature. He's got no shadow. He's got, we could say it in our modern context, he's got no dark side. At Christmas we said he's, he's Anakin before Vader. This is God. It's First John that says that in him is light. And there's no darkness at all. It's speaking about who God is. And a lot of times we have these ideas of these dark spots on God. Like I know God is mostly light and he loves me, but I see this dark spot of maybe he's angry. Or I know God is all satisfying and he's all good, but I see this dark spot in God and he's kind of unable to satisfy me in the way that I need, in the way that this thing is giving me. I know that God is all light. I know that he is all good. But I see this dark spot, and I don't really trust that he knows what I need more than I do. And James says, you've you got to know who God is. And here's the best way for you to know who God is. Uh, Mike, can you throw up that verse from Hebrews? It's, it's through the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible says this about Jesus. It says, uh, it's Hebrews 4, but I think it's at the end there. Uh, there it is. It says, seeing then that, notice this, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Here's what it tells us. us. All of us sinners who have fallen into temptation, let us hold fast our confession. Let's keep coming to God, for we do not have a high priest. We don't have a God who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Aren't you thankful this is who God is? He, he's not up on his high and lofty tower going like, oh, you don't do that bad stuff. I don't know what that's like. He entered into human history so that he could feel what we feel. There's a sympathy he has towards you, not an anger. And what makes him so good is not only has he shared in our weaknesses, but he's proven strong for us, yet without sin. Like, that's a good person to go to when you're struggling with someone, something. Two kinds of bad people. Some, one person who's like, I'm sorry, I just... Uh, I don't know what you're struggling with. I, I can't really feel bad for you because that's not my struggle. You don't go to that person, but nor do you go to the other person that's like, you're, you're looking for victory. They're like, man, uh, me too. I struggle with the same thing. I have not experienced victory for 20 years. <laughs> Follow me. It's like, I'll pray for you. Yeah. There's a sense in which all of us, which by the way, that's all you're going to find really when you look around. But, but, in Hebrews it says, lift your eyes to Jesus. You know when you see Jesus? You see a Savior who is sufficient to accept you with his grace because he's not mad at you. Because he passed the test for you. He can sympathize. He can feel what you feel. Despite your record, he brings you to himself in his love. And then he says, I'm the one who's walked in victory. Follow me as I lead you in victory. Follow me because I know how to deliver you from temptation. But we know that we got to come. We've got to come, and that's what it says in the next verse. It's an awesome invitation that we would come boldly to his throne of grace, that we might accept his grace and find mercy.